river deep mountain high. It was this moment of extreme conflict and tension and confusion. The white radio stations didn't know what to do with it because it was Tina Turner. And the black radio stations were like, Phil Spector's on this, this is a pop record. We can't play this music. Welcome to Medium Rotation, a new podcast from Triple Canopy. I'm Alexander Provan, the editor of the magazine. And I'm Nikita Gale, an artist living in LA. Nikita and I are hosting the first season of the podcast, Omni Audience, which asks how we understand ourselves and others through listening. In six episodes, we're examining the forces that shape how and to whom we listen and what the obstacles to listening reveal about our society. This episode is devoted to Tina Turner and specifically to Little Girls, Nikita's essay on Turner, the infamous producer Phil Spector, and the prospect of being heard without being controlled. Nikita has been thinking and making work about Turner for several years. Installations, performances, and this essay, which focuses on the genre-busting song that Spector and Turner made in 1966, River Deep, Mountain High. The song was a commercial failure, but a creative breakthrough for Turner, who'd previously been defined as an R&B singer and stifled by her controlling, abusive husband and bandmate, Ike Turner. Talking about Turner and Spector is also a way of talking about the role of the music industry in determining whose voices are amplified and whose are silenced. Nikita and I go back to our teenage years and ask how the musical genres that shaped our identities came into being and who they serve. How the race records of the 1920s, a marketing scheme to sell black music to black consumers, evolved into urban contemporary in the 1970s, with segregation of American cities being echoed on the airwaves, and today on Spotify, on the Grammys, and on record label rosters. We're trying to balance speaking and listening and situate you in the world of Turner's music, so our conversation is accompanied by outtakes from the River Deep Mountain High sessions, interviews, scenes from the Turner biopic, What's Love Got to Do With It, and other clips, all of which are listed in the show notes. In addition to the conversation, we're publishing a reading of Nikita's essay as a bonus episode. Finally, please excuse the quality of the audio on Nikita's end. It's a casualty of the pandemic, I'm afraid. Or of recording remotely in an L.A. apartment with songbirds by the windows. But I hope you enjoy the songbirds. Nikita, why Tina Turner? The simple answer for me is that Tina Turner, she's kind of a genre destroyer. Cause you got what I want. Tina Turner, to put it simply, represents a resistance or a refusal to occupy these preordained categories for performers. R&B, rock and roll, pop. I mean, genres are a marketing tool, but those tools really determine like who listens to or gets to access what types of media. Yeah, and now, of course we've gone way beyond demographics to even more precise and more isolating categories and also media delivery systems that not only rely on them, but are built to reinforce them. 
They're built to bolster the feedback loop that ends up with people getting more and more of what they've already proven they like and interacting with people who've done the same. And this feels especially true given the pandemic, right? Social life as a matter of calculations that yield target markets and custom audiences, which is to say that social life feels more and more like economic life. Yeah, there are a number of social dynamics at play when we think about popular music and popular culture. And one of those dynamics is this dynamic between performers and their audiences and how modes of distribution and recording can actually determine to a large extent who gets access to those recordings or who feels invited to identify with the performances that they're listening to. And genre has a really huge part in how those audiences and how that reception is determined. And the feedback loop is such that the marketing tools also determine which performers end up making records and getting, getting support, right? Or, or how those performers are molded and presented and how their music is produced. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a really profound connection between the idea of genre and the sort of social communities and dynamics that get formed around genre, right? Because if you go to, you know, if there's a rock show, there's a very physical, like communal component to that experience. I vaguely remember a physical communal experience. Yeah. Remember those back in the old days? A lot of sweaty bodies trying to like push through a bunch of dudes to get somewhere, anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Just sweating together elbowing each other. Just having all the sweat drip into my beer cup and, and just <laughs> <laughs> being so thirsty that I don't give a shit who sweats in my cup. Yeah, that's true. Who gets to sweat in your cup? That is a question of genre. And who gets to drink from that cup? <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, short answer, Tina Turner embodies this question of genre for me. There was always this thing kind of in the back of my mind where I felt like I was losing some point of identification by not seeing Black women represented in these genres. Even though I knew they were making this music, there were some people who were kind of on the edge, like Tracy Chapman was sort of like a folk hero. I had a feeling that I belonged I And like also in Atlanta, like when I was in my 20s, there were so many black artists making weird rock. And those were my friends because I was a music photographer. And my community was like these people who I just didn't even know existed because there was no point of reference for them in the mainstream. There was no audience for them beyond the audience that you all made together? Yeah, exactly. It's like the community that we formed was the audience that we were making work for. So how did, how did these genres come into being? Like, How did radio station formats end up being so rigid? The short answer is that it was just really racist. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, what we now recognize as urban contemporary as a genre that shows up on like the billboard charts actually has a pretty long history. Like the original name of that category of like black music was the 
race records chart. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it was like the Harlem hit parade and then rhythm and blues. And it was rhythm and blues for a long time. So it's like the name keeps changing, but the shape. Yeah. Like the infrastructure that supports it hasn't changed that much. Yeah. And this has been controversial recently, not just because of the the racist origins of the genre, but because so many of the people who are in charge of the music in the urban contemporary genre are also white. And obviously that that has an effect on the music that's produced and how it's shaped and how it's sold and whether there's an audience for it and so on. Yeah, yeah. Probably the most conspicuous example of this debate is Tyler, the creator's conflicted acceptance speech after getting a Grammy in 2020. You know, in recent days, there's been a lot of news about the voting process at the Grammys. Has any of that affected the way that you're looking at winning this award today? Uh, I'm half and half on it. Um, on one side, I'm very grateful that uh, what I made could just be you know, uh, acknowledged in a world like this. Um, but also it sucks that whenever we, and I mean, guys that look like me do anything that's genre bending or that's anything, they always put it in a rap or urban category, which is, and I don't like that urban word. It's just a politically correct way to say the N word to me. So when I hear that, I'm just like, why can't we just be in pop? Why can't it just, you know what I mean? So half of me feels like the the rap nomination was a backhanded compliment like oh uh my little cousin wants to play the game let's give him the unplugged controller so he could shut up and feel good about it that that's what it felt like a bit and even to like extend that conversation like it also comes down to a relationship to resources as well you know i would encourage you to take a look at some of your favorite records by black artists and just look at the liner notes and look at who are the engineers who's the producers like there's a lot more production happening by black artists and artists of color now but those more technical positions are still largely held by you know white john smith john smith yeah or dan something Dan, Dan. <laughs> like, so I was a Dan. Fuck you, Dan. Your days are numbered. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> or Mark. Mark is another one too. Mark with a C. Mark with a C. Uh. <laughs> yeah, same thing. Uh, yeah. I don't have to have ooze behind it. Okay. Let's forget about the intro for now. Let's just come right in. One, two, three. So how does Phil Spector fit in? Spector was a very popular music producer. You know, a lot of people have referred to him as like the first auteur in pop music. He sort of set off this whole, you know... The Orson Welles of pop music. Exactly, exactly. He invented a new and really influential approach to producing music, the wall of sound. But he used this mostly, at least at the beginning, to sell these infantile, regressive love songs to teenagers. Phil Spector's success is derived from an understanding of what he calls the teen sound, a sound constantly enriched by echo chamber effects and a multiplicity of other gimmicks designed to effectively underline a pulsating beat. Eventually though, he wanted to demolish these genres that had helped define him because they were limiting his vision of his own music, but also of his audience. So I wonder who Spectre is to you, or what does he represent? 
Yeah, you know, I think of Spectre in relationship to, you know, like before Tina and Ike started working together, Ike was making one of the earliest rock and roll songs, Rocket 88. Women have heard of Jalopin, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. But he was also just sort of like touring the smaller chitlin circuits and these sort of hole in the wall clubs throughout the southern U.S. and like St. Louis. So Spectre, through his relationship to Tina Turner and recording River Deep Mountain High, he actually plays this really important role as a facilitator because she said in her bio even that like her experience of recording River Deep Mountain High was the first time that she had been allowed to do anything musically on her own terms without Ike Turner. You know, when she's reflecting on this moment, she says something along the lines of, I was able to show people what I was capable of, that I wasn't just uh, an R&B artist doing covers or performing fairly lackluster productions that Ike was creating. Well, it was my first time working with a producer because Ike had done basically, you know, all my productions. And, um... The first day was the the fun part. Was the first day he was living in this like a mansion. Where is this? Here on the east. This is in Beverly Hills. Uh huh. Out west. And after sitting there for about maybe ten minutes, here comes Phil down the steps. There's no one in the house. It was real strange. And immediately he went to the piano and started playing. And and there was no conversation. It was real strange for the first three days. Uh-huh. Then after that, then we started working on the song. And he didn't want me to improvise at all. He just wanted just the melody, uh-huh. which is great for me for the first time because I had never, I had always been ad-libbing and delivering and screaming. It was finally yeah. the first song that I got to s- just sing. And uh, it was an experience. It was, when we went into the studio, there were about 75 musicians and he tore up the, the charts and because it wasn't what he wanted. And he just sort of did the arrangement right there verbally mm-hmm. to all those people. Now, is it true that because of this song, he sort of left recording for a while? It, it is known in the business that he was so upset with America because, you know, they wouldn't accept it because black stations said it was, it was too pop and the pop stations said it was too black uh-huh. and it had no home and Phil was just very upset about it. And He thought that this was going to be the ultimate, the ultimate state-of-the-art song of the day. It is in Europe, yeah. all over Europe. Yeah, it, it was is. a big hit, right? Yes, yeah. huge. And it just didn't make it in America, ever. Spectre kind of became this facilitator for this really profound experience for Turner, despite some of the difficulties she experienced during the the recording sessions, just in terms of, you know, performing hundreds of takes of the song without any clear direction on what Spectre was looking for exactly. Spectre's work has always been somewhat controversial because of the way he treated and manipulated artists. But that's been all the more true since, in 2009, he was convicted of murdering the Hollywood actress Lana Clarkson. He spent the rest of his life in prison and, earlier this year, died of COVID. And, as is typical, his death has revived interest in his music while also raising questions about how he worked with artists and about his legacy. Yeah, it's funny because I was just talking to you someone like a friend of mine who's an audio engineer and they were like yeah phil specter died rest in hell (laughs) so i think like in the in the music industry it's like there's no debate (laughs) about 
Spectre. It's like he's important, but people also, you know, acknowledge that he was fairly problematic in in his approaches to to working with to working with women. And like most of the women he worked with were, you know, they were black girl groups. So like the Ronettes and the Crystals were led by Ronnie Spector, Phil's former wife, and Darlene Love. And so it's like his ego and his personality and sort of the, a lot of the interest in the songs he was making were more connected to him as a producer than to specific performers that he was working with. Spector's beat is closely tuned to teen desire. I myself have a tremendous yearning. The yearning to be respected, the yearning to be accepted. I see this in the teenagers, yearning to do things, to be someone, to be important, and to be recognized. Difficult to say exactly why anyone would respond to this music. But basically, it is an emotional music for an emotional generation. He was notorious for switching out singers, including the lead singers. So he also ran a lot of these bands and performers like like corporations. And you write about this in the essay, one problematic aspect of Spectre's work, which is evident in River Deep Mountain High, is that he's always trying to submerge the singer into this, this wall of sound. And with Turner, he was clearly in the recording session trying to turn her voice into another one of his compositional tools, right? Right, yeah. Uh, I've always believed that Fred Astaire did, he changed forever the way dancers would sing. Well, Tina Turner, for me, changed forever the way singers would dance. I remember when we did the session, nothing more that would please Tina than to say, of course, don't get this the wrong way. What can I do for you, Phil? Because she, she meant everything. She could just do anything. She was like working with a perfect instrument. You know, it's like when you put together a picture of Spectre and just like psychologically, like where he was when he was making these recordings or like working on this wall of sound technique, it's almost as if the technique takes precedence over the performance that it's supposed to be supporting. You know, if you listen to the songs in succession, the lead just gets buried further and further into the composition. So by the time we get to River Deep Mountain High, it's just like everything you hear is on it, like an equal amplitude. Turner's voice is almost just filling in the gaps of the wall. Yeah, and her voice is sounds like cement being pushed out, like as the bricks are compressed. Yeah, and it's funny too because, you know, Spectre, by the time they recorded River Deep Mountain High, he had basically, he was just further alienating his audiences. I mean, he's been quoted as saying, that production was just for him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really, it wasn't for the audience. Right. He seemed at that point to not give a shit about the actually existing audience. Yeah. I mean, he even said something like, you know, it was too, it was too advanced or too sophisticated for the listening public. That record sounds like God hit the world and the world hit God back. Well, that's the way it happened. I didn't mean it to be that way, but I don't regret one goddamn minute. The day that we did the session, the, the room was full of people. I mean, he had eons of musicians, and he was a little bitty something out there screaming, I want this! I'm over! 
you know, <laughs> I mean, he's very persistent in what he wants. And the results is fantastic, but um, he's very, very, very strong personality. It's sort of worked for you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he's easy at all. <laughs> One more time. A little bit faster, just a little bit. Take two. The clips from the recording session, you know, I, I like those clips because it really puts you in this setting where you get a sense of how exhausting it must have been, like repeating this performance over and over again. But also you get a sense of just the density of the space. Like you can hear all these different like musicians talking back to Spectre when he interrupts the take to, to give someone like really specific direction. Like there's a part where he's just like, it's too much bongo. Or like, can I get a cowbell? It's so <laughs> precise and nitpicky. And that's what it means to be an auteur is to be extremely consistently annoying and in everyone's face. Play it to death. <laughs> So on the other hand, Spectre is trying to make a song that breaks down demographic categories. And he wasn't interested in packaging Turner in a way that would make her pleasing to the hordes of white teenagers that he'd set up as his default audience, right? Or even to the DJs who pandered to them. And that's an ambition that you're sympathetic to, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on one level, Spectre was just, he was a fan of the Ike and Tina review. Tina, Mr. Spectre would like to have a word with you. It's a pleasure to meet you, Mrs. Turner. Thank you. Your performance was wild. <laughs> hey, Phil Spectre. You know I ain't no use a fan. Hey, look at anything you got to say to her, you can say to me. All right, then. I'd like to record a song with her. Hey, y'all hear that? Phil Spectre wanted to record with Ike and Tina. Well, I'd like to record a song with Tina. Huh. You know, a part of that attraction was just seeing how turned on and excited the audiences were by their performances. Yeah. You know, it also speaks to the extreme level of genius and talent that Tina Turner has to be able to sort of, you know, galvanize an audience. It's ironic that, as you said, Spectre was attracted to Tina Turner because he saw her ability to galvanize or constitute an audience. And yet he couldn't help but put her in service of his vision of the audience that he wanted to establish. Or he couldn't help but exert control over her because he had this fantasy of a producer imposing a musical vision and the market or the audience being reconfigured in response. Yeah. As excited as Tina seemed to be, just according to her accounts of the experience, like she had this excitement around being able to just sing a song with a melody and not have to ad-lib and do all this yelling and screaming. 
he also didn't give her much agency. You know, he was very controlling and specific about her not ad-libbing. She even said when I would go into the ad-libbing and like screaming and like even doing like oohs and ahs, Spectre would be like, no, just sing the song. Just sing the song. <laughs> which, yeah, which is... It's like another kind of imposition. Yeah, like which, which she welcomed, but... Like to her, she didn't necessarily see it as an imposition, but yeah, it's like Spectre is like extremely controlling and telling her to not improvise at all. And then the other extreme is Ike, who basically relies on her improvisation to make the Ike and Tina review interesting. Yeah, and the onus is completely on her, and and I think that. Like the onus being on her is not the same as her having agency. And, and I think the agency of the singer and also the agency of the audience, of the listener, is something that you've been attuned to since you were a preteen listening to like alternative stations in Atlanta, right? Yeah. And I mean, when I was a teenager, obviously I wasn't thinking so specifically in these terms. It was more about just <laughs> personal taste. I wasn't like, yeah. how is my agency... Uh, being compromised by listening to <laughs> 99X versus V103. <laughs> yeah, that would have been, uh, you would have been a real bummer of a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I was always kind of shifting between garbage and Nine Inch Nails and Radiohead and like the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. <laughs> and then like TLC and In Vogue and like Lenny Kravitz, Bjork. And ironically, like only today have those styles completely merged. <laughs> I know, right? Like now there is no difference between those those yeah. genres. It's it's all kind of pop. Yeah. I guess both of us have since we were young been listening to and to some degree defining ourselves in relation to music that didn't really fit into the standard genres or radio station formats, which also means we felt alienated by the audiences for those genres or formats. You know, like you don't necessarily recognize yourself as belonging to the the alt-rock format audience or to the garbage nine-inch nails bin in the record store. But you also had questions that were specifically about the lines formed around race, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to this relationship just to public space that I became aware of, you know, when I was nine or 10. But I later started to learn more about these civil engineering and architectural projects around the moment of desegregation across the U.S. There, there's this architect named John Portman who notoriously began creating these buildings um, in and around Atlanta and like other cities that were designed so that if someone just walked in to the building from the sidewalk, they still wouldn't be able to access the space. There'd be these large atriums that would have, you know, a concierge or someone to filter the people who came into the space. You can see what you can't access, but you can't see beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so the other, like another really important component of these Portman buildings are these skywalks that were created to connect dozens of buildings together uh, so that people inside of the buildings, once they'd access the interior, 
wouldn't have to get back onto the sidewalk and mingle with whoever's walking around in the newly integrated public space. Like those people wouldn't have to actually leave the buildings. Yeah, it's like an entire city within a city that you can't you can't access unless you have credentials, however defined. Yeah, all under the the, the guise of public safety or white corporate utopia. <laughs> also that. And this this takes us back to Spectre, to the rise of radio, to the history of the Billboard charts, which classified music according to race. Right, the relationship between Spectre and Turner is also a vessel for that history. And more generally, for the history in the U.S. of this relationship between the production and marketing of music, which is also to say between how artists are made to sound and how how those representations of artists are sold and, and to whom. Yeah, and this is like where River Deep Mountain High comes in as like this moment of extreme conflict and tension and confusion. Because when that song came out, it was like, as Turner and like others have said, the white radio stations didn't know what to do with it because it was Tina Turner. And the black radio stations were like, Phil Spector's on this, this is a pop record. We can't play this music. Remember the name came out? I told you before, the blackness jockeys didn't know what to make of it as if, as if they should have judged it. They had no right to. And the white audience, the white jockeys, wouldn't play it because it was Ike and Tina Turner, and they felt it was a sepia black record, and they didn't want to program it on white stations. And most people thought it was too far out. When you were a young boy, did you have a puppy? But I was hurt for Tina, because I promised her that this would be a number one record. In England it was, it became number one in England, and I took out a, an ad in the trades which didn't help anything, saying Benedict Arnold was right after all. And uh, that killed the record completely. These people who are the gatekeepers for radio stations and what people are listening to had this moment where they were enacting their sense of responsibility to the audience and giving the audience what they presumed they wanted to hear. And River Deep Mountain High sort of, there was too much of a conflict. It was too confusing. And so it rarely, it didn't get much airplay. It debuted at like 88 on the Billboard charts in the US and then fell off like a month later. Real good work. Oh yeah, it's out of sight now. I ain't lying to you, it's out of sight. Huh? Thanks, Mike. No, it's out of sight. Of course, that's number one in Europe, and it's moving up the charts here in the U.S. Hey, that's Tina Turner down. and River Deep. More of your folks coming up, so stay right where you are. So the, the question here, which to me is also the question that animates your work, is personal, but it's also speculative. Like, what if something, what if something like the audience imagined by Spectre were to exist? Like the question is about the possibility of an audience for the kind of unorthodox genre busting music that he was trying to make. And if that audience were to exist, would it provide listeners with a means of identification that isn't so constricting and isn't so rooted in marketing? Yeah. I mean, the question for me in my work has always been a question of infrastructure and the ways that infrastructures either facilitate or 
make more difficult this idea of forming a social group or creating opportunities for viewers to identify with different types of performances that may not be mainstream or may not fit into a particular genre. And, you know, it's these very strident, often antiquated relationships to genre or infrastructure that produce like really profound losses on the part of audiences and on the part of just like cultural production. I just think about all of the artists or types of work that because they don't fit into like a recognizable category. It prevents those voices from being heard, but also prevents us from hearing those voices and from, from getting together through listening to those voices. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think so much of like audience formation centers around being able to collectively focus on or identify with a single point. That point being a performance or a performer. Thank you for listening to Medium Rotation. This is the final episode of the first season, Omni Audience, so we have nothing to preview. But keep an eye or ear out for the next season. And in the meantime, visit Triple Canopy's website to read, watch, and listen 
to works by those who've appeared on the podcast and works by many other excellent writers and artists who have not. Thanks again. Until next time. Keep on rolling. (laughs) Goodbye, friends. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Medium Rotation is presented by Triple Canopy, produced by Alexander Provan with Andrew Leland, and edited by Matt Frassica. Tashi Wada composed the theme music. Matt Malin acted as audio engineer and contributed additional music. 